Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for worship. Thank you for what our worship is doing for our own hearts to compel us to come to you, to rest in you, to be confident in you. Our worship is exposing the weakness of this world, the sinking of the sand of this world, and the steadfastness of Christ. Not that we hold on to Him, though we do, but He is the one who holds us and pulls us out of the sand and makes us to rest in Him, places us in confident places in in the Father. And uh, as we come to this word this morning, has such practical ramifications for where we live. Might it transform us? And this morning particularly, would you see fit to transform our attitudes, our expressions of love for one another, so that what we do in relation to one another would be utterly pleasing to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the great themes of the book of Romans is the freedom that the believer has in Jesus Christ. Consider just a few verses. 6-7, he who has died is freed from sin. 6-22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. 7-6, now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. 8.2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. 8.21, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. As we have made our way through these chapters, we have spent a lot of time thinking about the freedom we have in Christ and the joy that emanates from that freedom, that we are no longer in bondage to sin. We're not under bondage to the law. We're not under the condemnation that comes from the law. But what are the implications of that freedom? How do we relate to that freedom? How do we handle that freedom? What, what kinds of things can we do? That that question has been pondered by believers for millennia. As far back as the early church, the first church, they have considered that question, how free is a believer? It's what Paul addresses in Romans 14. It's what he addresses in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. And we still wrestle with those questions. How free is free? How far does our liberty go? Let me just give you a couple of examples. What kind of music is appropriate for worship? Does anything go, including secular music? How about a cappella only, or psalms only, or hymns only, or choruses only? How about anything as long as it's post-2000? Or how about anything as long as it's pre-1900? What about instruments? Drums or no drums? Choir or no choir? Lead singers or none? 
Parenting questions. How many children honor the Lord? One, two, four, eight. Do you use contraceptive devices or not? What kind of contraceptive devices? Spanking or timeouts or both? Repeatedly on the same day (laughs) or neither. When do you stop spanking? When does our authority over our children end? What is their responsibility to obey their parents when they're in their teens, their 20s, their 30s? Entertainment. Movie theaters or not? TV or none? If there's no TV, is Amazon Prime and Netflix or Hulu allowed? PG or R? If R, sometimes... Never, occasionally, what kind of standard makes an R acceptable or not? Books, paper, or digital? Or both? What kinds of books? Fiction? What kind of fiction? History? What kind of history? How many books? Just a side note. Sky's the limit on that one. (laughs) Amen. Vacation. How much money is too much money for a vacation? How long is too long? Are there places from which we should be restricted? Can we go to the beach on vacation at spring break? Speaking of which, what about clothing? What's modest for men and for women? Who decides? Can women wear slacks to church? How about jeans? What about makeup? That makeup probably isn't a big deal now. I don't know. I don't wear makeup myself, but... That was a huge issue not too many years ago. Spouse selection, courtship or dating, traditional methods of dating or online dating sites. If you're using online dating sites, which ones? Can you use secular ones or should you only use Christian ones? Vocabulary. (laughs) Tyler, I'm glad you mentioned this one earlier today. What do you say when you hit your thumb with a hammer? Are substitute words okay? Because we all know the we all know the big ones we're not supposed to say, but can you say something else that's a substitute that everybody knows what you really want to say? Is vulgarity okay? If so, are there limitations? Can the preacher use vulgarity in the pulpit? I think that one's clear, but not everybody thinks so. Is that a liberty issue? Schooling. Public, private, home. Who informs those decisions? Merchandise. What can I buy and from where? Can I purchase a product from a company that supports homosexual marriage and transgenderism? If not, are there limitations? Because honestly, if not, then you're going to be pretty limited on what you're buying and what you're eating. Food. Can we eat any foods? Are there limitations? My grandfather used to say, I don't eat pork. If it was bad for the Israelites, it's bad for me. He never had bacon. I like bacon. (laughs) I remember remember thinking about this actually has kind of become a family joke. Years ago, Emily was asking one day, well, what's for dinner for uh, what's for dinner tonight? And we said pork. And she was really young, three years old or something. She said, what's pork? We said Pig. Oh, I like piggy. (laughs) 
Are there restaurants that shouldn't be frequented because of the things that they serve there? Can we eat out on Sunday? What about alcohol? Can a Christian drink alcohol? If so, how much? In what contexts? And if so, what about cigarettes? What about marijuana? Politics? Oh, you knew I was going to start meddling, didn't you? Can you be a godly Christian and be a Republican? Democrat? Libertarian? Now I'm really meddling. COVID, to mask or not? To vaccinate or not? Are the choices that we make for all of these things absolute? Or can they vary from person to person or culture to culture? So a pastor was telling about traveling overseas with his wife. And his wife is standing there talking to a European woman. They're in somewhere in Europe. And the European woman is standing there talking. They served, they served wine at the table for a pastor's conference. And the woman is standing there swilling her wine in her wine glass, wondering how the pastor's wife for America can wear jeans to a pastor's conference religious event. Are these absolute or are there variants? And just a side note, I'm not just dreaming those things up. I I went back through the list. I think I've had conversations often on most of those, way more than one conversation on all of those issues. This is where we live. And there are answers that guide us through those questions. And that actually is why I have named my sermon the way I have. Answers about liberty, not questions but answers. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be examining what the Apostle Paul says about liberty and the practical use of our freedoms. And while there are a lot of different facets to what the Apostle is going to say, what we're going to find that drives everything is found in these opening verses. Use your individual freedoms as a means of preserving the corporate unity of the body. Our personal freedom is always subordinate to corporate responsibility. Our commitment to the unity of the body dominates this section. We want to act whatever we do and whatever we choices we make so as to preserve unity. And so in these opening verses, the Apostle Paul will give us a few preliminary thoughts and then three guides for how we think about these liberty issues. Next time, we're going to think about what are some of the principles that guide us in making choices about liberty issues. And then he's going to give some further warnings and exhortations in the last half of the chapter. But this morning, I just want you to see the dominant theme that we are to preserve the unity of the flock. Whatever else this passage will do for us, we will not be able to walk away from this passage and say, it's my freedom, I can do what I want. That is not the tenor of this passage. There are concerns that go way beyond the expression of our personal freedoms. Use your individual freedoms as a means of preserving the corporate unity of the body. Let me just give you a little theological context here. Uh, The Apostle Paul in Romans 14 does not use the word freedom. He does not use the word liberty. And he does not use the word conscience in this chapter. But it is clear 
that he is speaking about those concepts in part because of the examples he gives in verses 2 and 5. So, and, he, and those examples carry out throughout the passage. So in verse 2, he's talking about food choices and what kinds of things people eat. And verse 5, he's talking about worship choices, not unlike the music choices that we face in our contemporary church, and when people worship and what kind of feasts they will keep. Those are... Those are issues about liberty. Those are issues about conscience. Those are issues about freedom. Interestingly, in, the par- in a parallel passage in, Ro- in uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, the apostle does use the words conscience and liberty. Uh, if you want to just keep your finger here in Romans 14 and turn over a few pages to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8, he says this in verse 7. Not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as, it, as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And so there we actually see a parallel to what he's going to talk about in Romans 14 when he talks about the one who is weak. He's talking about the weakness of their conscience. So it's not just that they are inherently weak. It is that their conscience is weak, that they are quickly that they are quickly condemned by their conscience and don't feel the freedom to carry out liberty. Similarly, verse nine, take care that this liberty of yours talking in the context about eating food, take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So there's some who don't have weakness. They do have an ability to eat without their conscience convicting them. He will call them the strong in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. And he says that whatever we do in our actions should not condemn, should not become a stumbling, should not lead someone who is weak in their conscience to do that sin or that that thing, not a sin, do that thing that we're doing and thereby sin against their conscience. So the activity for the believer eating pork is not a sin. But some feel compelled to say, I can't eat that. And if I eat that, my conscience tells me it's a sin. And if somebody sees me eating pork, and they are led by, by my example to eat pork. I've led him to sin against his conscience. And so the eating of the pork isn't sin. But he believes it's sin. And I've caused him to stumble. And so the apostle is, is talking in Romans 14 about the very same kinds of things that he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 9. Liberty conscience and freedom he's also carrying on the theme of sanctification that he began in chapter 12 and specifically thinking about how do we relate to one another how do we care for one another in the body of christ how do we love one another so we've we've seen that throughout chapter 12 again in chapter 13 verse 8 owe nothing to anyone except to love one another it is it is essential that we love one another in the body of Christ. And so when Paul is addressing these issues, it is within that framework, within that context. He's not laid aside sanctification. He's not laying aside love. He is continuing to build on that idea. Let's think for just a moment about what freedom is and is not. First of all, freedom does not mean freedom to sin. 
So we're going to talk a lot over the next few weeks about freedom. Never hear when I say that, and I'm not going to qualify it every time, but just understand as a base, whenever we say freedom, we are not talking about freedom to engage in sin. Engaging in sin is never freedom. It's always bondage. Sin traps. Sin ensnares. We have been released from sin. We have not been released to sin. And that's why we read what we did in in, uh, Romans chapter 6 earlier this morning as our call to worship. So whenever Paul talks about freedoms... He is talking about things that are not inherently sin. And so if someone is engaging in a sinful activity, watching pornography, he can't claim the card of, it's a freedom in Christ. No, brother. That's bondage and enslavement to sin. You don't have that freedom. In fact, that isn't freedom. That's bondage. So when Paul says things are free or things or liberty, he is referring to things that Scripture has not condemned as sin. And it's possible to either do that thing or not do that thing and sin and not sin in either occurrence. What is freedom? For the believer, freedom is that he has been liberated from the bondage to sin. He can do something besides sin. The only thing that an unbeliever can do is sin because he never does anything for the glory of God. Everything is ultimately sin and condemnation for the unbeliever. But for the believer, that's not true. We've been released from that bondage. So freedom also then for the believer is that we are liberated to obey God. We can do the things that we previously could not do. We saw that in chapter 8, verse 4, particularly as we made our way through this book. The believer also is liberated from the obligations of the law. That's why we read what we read in Romans chapter 7. We are not under obligation to keep the law because Christ has kept it for us. And when the Father looks at us, if we are in Christ, He sees Christ's perfect keeping of the law. There's nothing more to keep. It's been kept for us. We are also liberated to enjoy all the good gifts that God has given. That's partly why we made that book the book of the month, uh, because it's, it's about enjoying the things that God has given us to enjoy for our enjoyment. And that's a freedom. What then is the relationship of the conscience to freedom. Turn back to Romans chapter 2. I think um, when we were in Romans 2, we spent several weeks thinking about the conscience. And I don't want to go back. You can go to the website and listen to those sermons that I think might help you as you think about the conscience. But So I don't want to rehash everything there. But let me just highlight a couple of things. Verse 14, Romans 2, 14. When Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, for they show the work of the law written in their hearts. So even an unbeliever, though he doesn't have the word of God to guide him, he doesn't have the Old Testament law when Paul was writing, or now he doesn't have the Old Testament law or the New Testament, 
He has nothing about God's revelation, yet he instinctively knows things that are right and things that are wrong. And when he has that, it demonstrates that it has been written on his heart. He has an innate knowledge about good and evil, right and wrong, righteousness and evil. That's information about what is right and what is wrong. That's different from the conscience. Verse 15 Their conscience, this is again still the unbeliever, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. So they have information, this is right, this is wrong, and their conscience is the judge and jury against them or for them about whether or not they have violated what they know to be right and wrong or whether they have upheld what is right and what is wrong. So their conscience is that which tells them that's wrong or that's good. In their outstanding book, uh, Nacelli and Crowley, on the book Conscience, write this. Conscience functions as a guide, monitor, witness, and judge. Your conscience guides you to help you conform to moral standards, monitors how you conform to them, testifies to how you conform to them, and judges how you conform to them, thus making you feel guilt and pain. The conscience is your consciousness about what you believe is right and wrong. It's basically your moral awareness turned back on yourself. So the conscience in every person functions to evaluate constantly whether the things that we do are right or wrong. Our conscience is constantly telling us making evaluation of us about our freedoms. So if you have a TV at your house and if you turn it on this afternoon, it will tell you this is right and this is a freedom or this is wrong and you don't have a freedom and it's sin. And everything we do, it's evaluating us at that level. And that's exactly what was going on in Romans 14. Some had their conscience so constructed that things that God had said, this is a liberty and you can enjoy it, their conscience was telling them that's wrong. And those are the people that Paul identifies here as weak. So let's think about what Paul is doing in this particular passage with all that as introduction. I want you to notice, first of all, the reality of differences. And as we talk about differences in the body, we understand that there are weak people in the body. The big question in this chapter is related to verse 1. When Paul says, except the one who is weak in faith, who is the one who is weak in faith? And there are at least six different possibilities about who that person is. I won't tell you all the different possibilities. I'll cut to the chase. I think that the person who is weak in faith is the one who is probably converted to following Jesus Christ from Judaism and he is bringing all of the habits from Judaism and the law into his faith 
And his conscience has been telling him for all the years that he has been trying to please God, I can't eat pork. I must worship on the Sabbath. I must worship on the feast days. And it is his conscience that it was, was so finely attuned when he was not yet in Christ continues to function in that same way when he is in Christ. He's not been liberated. So we see that in verse 2. He, he can't eat everything. And he's afraid of eating some meat that might violate the law so he doesn't eat any meat at all. Just so he doesn't violate the law. He, verse 5, wants to worship on a particular day. Wants to make sure I'm, I'm worshiping on the right feast days. Continuing to maintain the law as it relates to the feast days. They're, they're not struggling over faith in Christ. I want you to notice that he says they are weak in faith. So they're in the faith. They're just weak. Someone has said they, they lack the confidence of what their faith has granted to them in Christ. I find that really helpful. So as you think about people in this passage that are weak, think about people who just aren't confident about the freedoms that have been granted to them in Christ. They're not wrestling over doctrine. They're not wrestling over salvation. If the question was whether or not they were really in Christ, I think the Apostle Paul would have been very quick to reaffirm the gospel. And that's not what he does in this context. Their problem is simply that they can't enjoy the freedoms of Christ. They're prone to legalism. They're prone to emphasizing the hardness of the faith. They're prone to not enjoying grace. You know, it's notable is that Paul does not spend one word explaining why they are weak. He's just affirming the reality that there are some who are in the body who are weak. The reasons are various. They are probably as various as the individuals. They are weak and they exist and they're in the body. They were in Rome. They were in Corinth. They're in the United States today. They're in Granbury, Texas. They're at Grace Bible Church in Granbury, Texas. And probably in reality, all of us struggle at some places with some of these things, even if we don't struggle in all places with all these things. There's a sense in which perhaps all of us have areas where we are not confident in the grace of Christ. There's another reality I want you to see in verses 1 and 2, and that is that there are strong people. Now, interestingly, while Paul talks about strong people in 1 Corinthians 8, he does not use the term strong in this chapter, though it is clear that he is talking about someone who is in contrast to those who is weak. Who is weak. So he says in verse 2, one person has faith that he may, may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So there's a weak person that only eats vegetables, and there's a strong person that says, give me some shrimp wrapped in bacon. Both of which were violations of the law from which he has been set free. So there are some who are strong. They're confident. 
Their faith doesn't waver. They understand the liberties that they have. And they're not afraid to indulge them. It seems that Paul identifies himself with the strong. Verse 14, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So he seems to identify with the strong, but he doesn't belabor the point. He doesn't try and correct anyone's theology or practice. But he does want to help us think about how we relate to one another when some are strong and some are weak. What he also would have us understand, I think, is that while there are weak and while there are strong, the, the strong dominate in that there are more strong and fewer weak. Let me, let me translate this into Texan 14.1. Now all y'all except that one who is weak in faith. All y'all. Everybody. And he's speaking in plural. So the entire church body and every person in the church body is to accept the one. And I think he's pointing to there's a, a large number who are strong and a small number who are weak. And the temptation for the strong is going to be to dismiss and overlook, at times mock the weak, sometimes maybe though the text doesn't refer to it, try to compel the weak to do what the strong do without adequately teaching the weak. And that leads the apostle to another issue, and that is those different people have different ideas about daily concerns. Whether someone is weak or someone is strong, there is a temptation to compel others to have the same opinion as us. One poet says it this way, Believe as I believe. No more, no less. That I am right and no one else, you confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do. Then and only then will I fellowship with you. Now we giggle at that perhaps. But that's the way a lot of us actually function. And that attitude will only produce disharmony and destroy love in the body. Paul identifies two particular areas of disagreement. It's unclear if this is actually happening in Rome or if he's just grabbing these as things that are typical. They certainly were going on in Corinth. And uh, perhaps it was his experience with Corinth that was making him to bring these things up again. Regardless, these were real issues that were creating real problems in the early church. Food and worship. And notice verse 2, he says, The one that has faith may eat all things. He eats all kinds of food. He's not bound by the law. He's not burdened by thoughts that say, Did I sin when I ate that meat? Did Did that dish have a little bit of pork fat in it that I didn't know about when it was being prepared? Was there a piece of shellfish in that sauce? He knows the liberty that has been granted to him when Christ, Mark chapter 7, verse 19, declared all foods clean. He knows, Acts chapter 10, arise, kill, eat. And everything is part of that. He doesn't question those things. He doesn't have doubts about those things. He eats it all. One who is weak, 
eats only vegetables. The text actually says the weak eats vegetables. And he doesn't mean by that um, that the strong don't eat vegetables or that the strong ignore their vegetables, that strong are rebellious to their parents who've been telling them, eat your vegetables. But there are some from verse 21 that we know that say it is good not to eat meat or drink wine. So there's some who are saying, don't eat meat. It's just going to lead you to trouble. Just stay away from it. And in so doing, they only eat vegetables. Why why does he eat only vegetables? Lots of ideas in the commentaries about why they only eat vegetables. It's really immaterial. What we need to see is that their conscience is telling them, I can't eat meat. I can only eat vegetables. Listen to me. And that is not a sin. It's acceptable to eat pork and not sin. And it's acceptable to eat vegetables and not sin. Similarly, there are different kinds of worship. Verse 5. One person regards one day above another. From verse 6, it seems that he's talking about worship events. Could be that he's talking about Sabbath and regular worship so that some person is coming and saying, we can only worship on the Sabbath, we can't worship on Sunday. It could be that he's talking about the feast days as it relates to Old Testament practices. They say, this day is better. This day is more important. This day is more significant. We need to make sure to keep this day. And another person says, it's just a day. It's it's all belongs to the Lord. We've been liberated from keeping those feasts. Again, notice, neither one, when they do that, is sinning. Paul's not talking about a sin issue. He's talking about something that someone is free to do either side So hear me, there is no priority to resolve the differences of practice. Paul is not interested in turning vegetarians into carnivores. He is not interested in saying, you don't have to worship on that feast day, let it go. He's not interested in saying... It's Saturday. Go wash your car and go camping. He's not trying to make people uniform in action. That's not his goal. There are differences in how we live in the church body. And the most important concern for Paul in this section is how will we live to exemplify our love for one another, not How can we change the other to do what I do? It's not about getting people to conform to me. It's not about uniformity of action. It is about unity regardless of our action. Number two. One attitude to guide our different choices. Remember when I said earlier, 15 to 18 sermons... It's partly because 
things like today happen and I'm not going to make it to the end. So 15, 18, maybe 19, 20. But I want you to see this in verse 1. One principle that dominates everything else in this chapter, and Paul gives it right at the beginning, accept the one who is weak. Accept him. To accept someone is to bring him into fellowship. It's companionship. It's even intimacy. When we think about that word accepting, we kind of think of it as tolerance. As in, I tolerate paying taxes. I understand that it's a requirement and a duty, so I do it, but I really don't like it. Some of us relate to people in our lives in the same way. I accept my boss. I understand that he is over me. I understand that he can fire me. I understand that he's the one that's going to give me the promotion, but I really don't care for him. That is not what the apostle is talking about here. Paul means to bring that person into full fellowship and relationship in the body. There are no limitations on service, whether they are strong or weak. I imagine that if the Apostle Paul were living in our culture, he would envision both meat eaters and vegetarians serving together as elders or deacons, awana leaders, counselors, home group leaders. I imagine that the Apostle Paul would see the meat eater and the vegetarian going after they participate at an event at church together, that they go out for a meal together. They pray together. They help each other. They don't hate each other. They don't look down at each other. They embrace each other. They love one another. There is a contrast to this acceptance. It's given to us at the end of verse 1. Accept the one who is weak in faith but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. If you don't accept what you're doing, if you're not accepting, is you're going to be tempted to fall into making judgments about his opinions. So he has opinions. He has scruples. He has made decisions about what he thinks is the right thing to do in his conscience. His conscience is telling him, that's a sin if you do that. In order to be righteous, you must do this. And when you don't accept him, you're evaluating his heart, his scruples. You've passed judgment on him. Brothers and sisters, we just need to remember, we don't know the heart. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know what has driven him to come up with those opinions to make the decisions that he has made. Brothers and sisters, we just know that what they're doing isn't sin. So they're different. Embrace them. No one who accepts another will say, well, I welcome you. But I will really welcome you when you attain to my level of spirituality and stop what you're doing. No one's doing that. 
Accepting one another is not to say, I am so glad he's joining the church body because now I can hold him accountable and now I can change him. It's not what's going on. The weak person doesn't come into the church body and say, man, am I glad I'm here so that I can enlighten you and compel you to stop acting so unwisely and so foolishly and so much like a libertine. No, neither of those attitudes are welcoming. Neither are accepting. Both are condemning. Acceptance says, I embrace your participation in the body. Not only I embrace your participation, but I will work to make sure that you can continue to carry out the freedom that you desire to carry out, even if it's something different than mine. You will miss other things I say from this passage. Don't miss this. This is the heart of what the Apostle says. We accept one another because we love one another. Again, we're not talking about sin. There's no acceptance of sin. There's no overlooking sin. That's not the issue on the table. The issue is that it's not a sin. It's just a different choice. And we accept each other because we love each other. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is so important. Even as we're coming out of what has happened over the last 18 months with covid This is so important because I don't know how many people are in this room, but I can promise you there's that many different opinions about COVID and everything else. And we need to accept one another. Some of you may be married to someone or have children who have different opinions about all the things that relate to COVID. And it's okay to have those opinions. Just make sure you love each other and you accept one another. Remember all those issues that we talked about at the beginning? Parenting and marriage, worship music, food, clothing, merchandise, entertainment, money, politics. We have opinions. And we're going to start thinking next week about how to form those opinions in a way that honors the Lord. But more than our opinions about those topics, we need to have the opinion of loving one another, of caring for one another, accepting one another, relating to one another in such a way that no matter what our personal choices are, both the strong and the weak walk out saying, I'm loved by my brother. That's our goal. The goal isn't how free can I be? The goal is how well can I love my brother? Father, thanks for the reminder of this passage and we trust that as we talk about these things over the coming weeks that you will shape us, preserve us and make us to function even more effectively as those who love one another. For in your great kindness, you have made this church body a place that is loving. But might we excel still more. Might we grow still more in the way we love one another so that all are accepted, all are cared for, all are nurtured, and you are glorified. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.